Good morning. Merry Christmas in advance. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're going to be reading from Titus chapter 2. We're continuing our Christmas series, this kind of Advent series of the first coming or appearing of Christ series in the pastoral epistles where we've been focused on these sort of gospel in a nutshell passages. Russell will conclude that series next week in Titus 3. But we've moved through First and Second Timothy and now Titus starting today with these gospel in a nutshell passages. So if you'll look with me at Titus chapter 2, we're going to be looking at Titus 2, 11 through 14, and then jumping into the text together. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this as it is, the word of the Lord. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And we pray that your spirit would give us understanding of what you have superintended at the hand of Paul, not only for Titus and the churches in Crete, but for all of your people throughout history. Help us to understand that. Help us to live in light of it. If there are people here who do not know Christ, who are not trusting in him, cause them to look to him and be saved. For those of us who do know Christ, cause us to grow in godliness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Christmas season, I said, we've been focused on a series on the first advent of Jesus Christ by preaching these gospel in a nutshell passages in the pastoral epistles. We turn this morning to Titus. We've looked at the first two letters to Timothy, and now this morning to Titus. Titus was sent by the Apostle Paul to Crete to pastor the church in Crete. And really, as he was sent there, as Timothy was sent to Ephesus, so Titus is sent to Crete in order, if you will, to clean up the mess. The mess created by unqualified elders who were unwilling to do their duty to the church. False doctrine had infected the churches in Crete. Paul wanted Titus to teach sound doctrine that accords with godly living. Look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a minister of the Lord, a doulos, a slave or a servant of God. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is sent out specifically with the authoritative word to plant churches and to correct those who are in error. Now notice what he says. He is this for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, now catch this, which accords with godliness. In other words, I want them to know the truth 
which accords with godliness. That's what God has sent me out to do, to make known the truth that accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Paul wanted Titus to teach sound doctrine that accords with godly living as well. Paul wanted Titus to appoint new godly elders who would do their duty. Look at Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. In other words, it was out of order because of ungodly leaders, false teachers. Put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now he's going to go on and give you the biblical qualifications as to godliness for elders, but he also comes in and talks about their qualification as to their ability to handle the word of God. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's healthy doctrine. To give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So I want elders who have the ability and the will to do two things. One, teach sound doctrine. Two, rebuke those who contradict it. We need them both. Why? Because false teachers have arisen. There were two errors that had taken hold of the church or the churches in Crete. Here's the first error that had taken hold of them. The gospel had been perverted by those of the circumcision party. They're also known as the Judaizers. Those who believed that it wasn't sufficient to trust in Christ for your salvation, but you also needed to become a converted Jew and be circumcised under the law of Moses or under the covenant with Moses. You needed that to be saved. And so Paul has to deal with that error. They've misunderstood that circumcision has always pointed forward to the coming of Christ or the circumcision of Christ, his own blood shed at the cross. And they've tried to tell Gentiles they have to become Jews and be circumcised in order to be saved that Christ is not enough. And so Paul addresses them. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, especially them. See, they wanted to add good works, if you will, the good work of being circumcised. Now, I want you to catch this word as an antecedent condition to salvation. You might say, what's an antecedent condition? An antecedent condition is a condition that comes beforehand. You must meet that condition that comes beforehand to be saved. In other words, the circumcision party taught that you could not be forgiven of your sins, declared righteous, saved by Jesus Christ, unless you met two conditions beforehand. First, you have to believe in Jesus. The circumcision party taught that. But they added something to it. You also had to do good works, namely, receive circumcision and begin to fulfill the law of Moses. You had to do all that before you could be saved. That's the error with regard to the gospel of the circumcision party. The second error that he has to deal with in Titus, the second error is a false doctrine that infested the church that was teaching really an opposite error, if you will. It was teaching that good works are not necessary at all. That you just don't need them ever. Even as, now catch the phrase, a consequent condition. A consequent condition is a condition that's a consequence of something that came before. In other words, it comes after. So some were teaching that you could have true faith in Jesus, 
that didn't change you. True faith that did not necessarily issue in godly living or good works. They believed there was, if you will, a saving gospel that redeemed you from the penalty of sin, but not from the power of sin. And Paul gave no quarter to such a weak notion of grace. It's a weak notion of grace. Paul had no tolerance for it. He did not believe in an understanding of faith in Christ that was not followed by a life of godly living. Anyone with true faith in Christ was necessarily devoted to good works as a consequence, listen, as a consequence of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Not as a condition to get the saving grace of Jesus Christ, but as a consequence of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Look at Titus 1.16. He's talking about those in Crete. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, I mean, if a pastor threw that language out at you, you might think, wow, that's strong language. He just called them evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So you understand this is uh, strong language that's coming out here. People professing to believe in God, to trust in Jesus Christ, but who walk in ungodliness, Paul has no tolerance for them. They're teaching a false gospel. They're believing a false gospel. So he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now he's going to go on and say what accords with sound doctrine is godly living. So older men should behave this way. Older women should behave this way. Younger men should behave this way. Younger women should behave this way. Slaves or servants should behave this way. Their masters should behave this way. I mean, that's what he essentially goes on to say. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8, just to drive this home. Russell will come to this passage next week with more depth, but notice what it says. Chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul telling Titus, insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Or look at Titus 3 and verse 14. And let people learn to devote themselves to good works. Are you guys catching the importance here? What I'm driving at is this. The grace of God is far more gracious than either of these errors permitted. Far more gracious than either of these errors permitted. Christ's first coming has affected us comprehensively. And this morning I want to consider three effects, if you will, of the first advent of Christ or the appearance of the grace of God. In other words, three gracious effects of Christmas. What are you meditating on today and tomorrow? How about meditating upon these three effects of the grace of God in Christ or the coming of Christ to Christmas? Here's the order we'll take them in. First, the grace of God in Christ saves all his people. We'll look at Titus 2, 11 and 14. So those two verses, 11 and 14. The grace of God in Christ saves all his people. Second, the grace of God in Christ trains all his people to walk in godliness. I'll go over these again. Trains all his people to walk in godliness. We'll look at that in Titus 2, 12. And third, the grace of God in Christ brings us eternal hope. Titus 2, 13. Brings us eternal hope. Maybe you can talk about these at lunch today or around the table at breakfast in the morning.
what the grace of God in Christ, the appearance of Christ that we are celebrating at Christmas brings to us. Salvation, training us in godliness, and giving us eternal hope. That's what we're going to look at. So the grace of God in Christ saves all his people. Let's look at that first point. Look at Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, he's just been listing the kinds of people he's talking about. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Slaves, masters, etc. It brings salvation for all his people. Now, I want you to notice how the passage is structured. Thematically, in this passage, we actually see two appearances. First, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. First appearance you see. Now look down at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first, the grace of God has appeared. That's a reference to the first appearance of Christ, or what we call the incarnation. God the Son taking humanity to himself. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The grace of God appeared when Christ came. Now, God has always been the God of all grace. Don't get me wrong. He's always been giving grace to his people. That grace has always been a gift we receive in Christ and Christ alone. He's always been the savior of men. No one from the fall of Adam and Eve to this day who has ever been saved has been saved apart from faith in Christ. No one. But prior to Christ's coming, prior to his appearance at Christmas, if you will, no one had seen the visible manifestation of the Savior. No one had seen him visibly. In that sense, the grace of God had not yet appeared. Listen to how Timothy, as this is referred to in Timothy by Paul. We looked at this passage already, so you don't need to turn there. In 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. Listen, when did God give us grace in Christ? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before times eternal. And which has now been manifested or revealed or appeared through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. So we've always had the grace of God in Christ. It's the only way any man has ever had the grace of God is through faith in Christ. But he appeared in time at the incarnation. And what Paul is doing is he's saying the incarnation of Christ is the appearing, now catch this, of the grace of God. That's how he refers to Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared. See, grace is not a substance we dole out. It isn't something I can put in water and make the water holy. It isn't something I can put in bread and juice or wine and make those elements holy in and of themselves. Grace is a person, Jesus Christ, whom you come to know by the working of the Holy Spirit through faith, and you're united to him. He is the grace of God to you. And what Paul's doing here is he's saying that the incarnation is the appearance in history of the grace of God. Do you remember what the angels told the shepherds at the birth of Jesus? And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the incarnation is the first visible appearing of God's grace. The first visible appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He has come to save all his people. And Paul mentions a second appearing as well in verse 13. When he says that we're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace of God already appeared, and he will come again. He's come once, he's going to come twice. That is speaking to his first advent in verse 11, and his second advent in verse 13. But notice how Paul springs from mentioning our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to his gracious work for us. Right after he mentions that, by the way, that phrase, I don't have time to dig into this today, but there's a little rule in Greek called the Granville Sharp Rule. And that phrase, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior are both reference to Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is our great God and Savior. Who, now notice he goes right to his work. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He just summed up the salvation that Christ has brought to all men right there. Herein Paul has described the saving work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how he graciously worked on our behalf. There's so much biblical theology loaded up here that I barely have time to scratch the surface. With that said, I want to give you a brief rundown of what Christ our Savior has graciously done for us. I just break the phrase there in verse 14, that sentence, or that verse, into three parts. Notice the first one, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. That statement alone is enough to ponder for the rest of your life. Do you understand that? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. I just want you to think about that. God created us in true righteousness and holiness. We rebelled against his law. We sinned. We traded his wisdom for our wisdom. We traded his law for our law. We traded his glory for our glory. And what did our great God do in response to our wickedness? He gave himself for us. What did we do to deserve that? Nothing. Not one thing. Did he see some righteousness in us? No. Did he recognize something attractive and adorable about us? No. Did he see some future good in us? No. Out of the Father's great love for us, he gave his only begotten Son our Lord Jesus Christ. Out of the Son's great love for us, he condescended to take human nature to himself and to offer himself or give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Out of the Holy Spirit's great love for us, he gave us new hearts to believe in Christ, cleansed us from within by uniting us to Christ, and indwelled us so that we might grow in grace. Our triune God is gracious and merciful to us because he is the God of all grace. 
And that leads really to our second part. To what end, if I'm going to break this in three parts, to what end did our great God and Savior give himself, look at that, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. To redeem us. There's two things that are going to be mentioned here. One will be the second part, the other will be the third. To redeem us from all lawlessness, that's the first one. Second, to purify for himself a people for his own possession or zealous for good works. So let's deal with the second part. To redeem us from all lawlessness. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Redemption is the language of being bought back as a slave or being bought out of slavery. Remember, Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And the Lord promised Israel that he would redeem Israel from an even greater enemy than Pharaoh. The enemy of our own sin. If you will, Pharaoh is like a type or a picture of Satan and sin. Being in slavery to Egypt is a picture of the same. And God promised Israel, and Israel sang about the fact that they would be redeemed from a greater enemy than Pharaoh, the enemy of their own sin. Listen to their song in Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, covenantal faithfulness. And with him is plentiful redemption. Now listen. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Sin. We were slaves to sin, and Jesus redeemed us. First, we were redeemed from the penalty of sin. So Paul will say in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, forgiven of our sins, and declared righteous by his grace... As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer by his blood to be received, how? By faith. Christ gave himself at the cross to pay the penalty of God's wrath, the penalty of death and hell due to us for our sins. You understand that? For our sins, before a holy God, death is our due punishment, as is the wrath of God and hell. That is not good news. That is the bad news. The good news is that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from that, from the penalty of sin. Further, we were redeemed from the power of sin. So that Paul can go on and say, in Romans 6, 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now how did that happen? And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, God set us free from the penalty of sin in Christ, and God set us free from the power of sin in Christ. He redeemed us from all lawlessness in Christ. Christ gave himself to redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin. Therefore, Paul says, Jesus also gave himself. He gave himself to what? Now notice the next phrase, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. As sinners, we were unclean, 
defiled, unable to dwell with God, cast out of his presence. Remember, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden where God dwells. We are not able to come near to the holy place where God dwells. When God appears in a theophany of fire in the burning bush, Moses is told, do not come near. You're going to be consumed. When God's glory fills the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, the depressing word is, even Moses couldn't enter. We can't enter where God's holy presence is apart from atoning sacrifices to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're unclean, cast away from his glorious and holy dwelling. As those who were enslaved to sin and death, we were not zealous for good works. That's, by the way, why if you touched a dead person or near a dead person, you couldn't enter the tabernacle because you would come in contact with death so you were unclean. And listen, here's the point. As sinners, we've all come in contact with death. Our minds and our hearts were bent to self-gratification and self-exaltation. We not only failed to keep the law from the heart, we were unable to keep the law from the heart. And our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself to remedy this problem. In the giving of himself, he purifies, you hear that language? Purifies a people for his own possession. He cleanses them from uncleanness. Purifies a people for his own possession. A people who are zealous for good works. See, the Lord promised that he would send the seed of the woman, the second Adam, the son of Abraham, Israel his servant, the son of David, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. This seed of the woman, this second Adam, would be everything Adam failed to be, everything Israel failed to be. He would keep the law that neither Adam nor Israel kept. He'd be a blessing to all nations. He would sit on the throne of David forever, and all who trust in him would be God's people, and God would be their God, and God would dwell among them forever. So when Israel was in exile, under Babylonian exile, if you remember, Ezekiel prophesied that this would all be fulfilled in the coming of Christ, or the Messiah. Listen to what Ezekiel said. And Russell, I'm sure, will pick up on this passage more next week. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, listen, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He is purifying a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. Or listen to Ezekiel 37, 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, they and their children, 
and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Friends, do you hear it? Jesus gave himself to accomplish all this. The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ and brought salvation to all his people. Charles Simeon rightly said it this way. This is the true character of the gospel. It is grace, mere grace, and altogether grace from first to last. It brings a free, a full, a finished salvation. It requires nothing to be done to purchase its blessings or to merit them in any measure. In it, God gives all and we receive all. What glorious good news we've received in Christ. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. His incarnation is the appearance of the grace of God. He redeemed us from all lawlessness and purified us to be a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. It's the first effect of Christmas. Let's talk about the second effect of the appearance of Christ. The grace of God in Christ trains all his people to walk in godliness. You already were hearing that in the last point, but I want to press on it more. Look at Titus 2.12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Note these initial words, training us. Now I'll come back to this in a minute, but let me just say this. This word training us is the Greek word paideia. Now, we see that used in Ephesians 6, 4. Let me let you hear how it's used there. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up. Calvin says this means to fondly cherish. Bring them up or fondly cherish them in the discipline, paideia, and instruction of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, raise your children as Christians. Paideia is more than just being taught content. I want you to understand that. It's more than just being taught true propositions, though true propositions would certainly be included. Content would be included. Paideia is a kind of enculturation, if you will. In Greek thought, now I'm going to get into Greek thought and education for a minute because it's relevant to what we're talking about here. And I'm just going to give you a very simple understanding. Overly simple, probably, but I'll do it anyway. In Greek thought, the purpose of education was the development of a virtuous man. Education was not merely to, maybe I should say this way, education was not really to develop, was, the purpose was not to develop a set of academic or practical skills to make you useful in the marketplace. That wasn't their primary concern. That view of education is the modern and utilitarian understanding of education. That the reason education exists is to give you a particular set of skills in math and science and history and English, etc., so that you're a useful product in the marketplace. In modern education, we educate children with the goal of making them into competitive products we can sell in the marketplace and to make them compliant citizens of the state. Now, you might say, that's harsh language. It is. 
And I hear it from parents all the time. They sit in front of me and say, well, what does this school offer to me? How will it make my kids better at math and better at English so they meet these state standards and get in college and get a good job? And I think to myself, is your child a product you're trying to sell? Or are they a human being you want to be developed in virtue? Those are different things, friends. Those are different goals. That's why Christian doctrine, moral formation, habit training, and Western ideals have almost no place in modern education. Whether that education is in public schools or the private schools, that has almost no place. Parents want to know if their children will be good at math and reading and get into the best colleges so they can get the best jobs, so they can have the best careers. Rarely do they ask, how is a school shaping our children into virtuous human beings? But classical education, or Greek paideia, which I'm getting into because Paul's actually borrowing from that here. Classical education, or Greek paideia, had a different goal. The goal was to raise up or to form virtuous men. Men who were not only academically excellent, that's good, but who were also self-controlled and upright in their treatment of their neighbors, or self-controlled and controlled and just. In other words, virtuous men for the Greek people who could keep their passions in check and who could live justly among the men whom they walked. The Greeks wanted to raise up men like this, men who were not controlled by their passions but were controlled by what is good and true and beautiful. Modern education, on the other hand, is child-centered and merely wants children to do whatever makes them happy. And of course, maximal financial success would be maximal happiness, right? We actually teach children to be governed by their passions. We teach them that. Follow your heart. Pursue your passion. You do you. As an aside, no one needs to be taught to pursue their passions. Do you know that? You need to be taught to keep your passions in check. You will pursue them if you don't keep, aren't taught to keep them in check. And that will be your problem, your undoing. And Paul's borrowing from that Greek idea of paideia, of forming virtuous, self-controlled men, and Paul is transforming it. He's actually using their language, self-controlled and upright, paideia. So he's, he's using their language, and he's transforming it in two important ways. First, Paul's augmenting it with godliness. Notice this. We'll look at these two. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He's augmenting this with godliness. Paul understands that a man must be formed who has his gaze directed Godward. It is not sufficient for that man to have civil virtue, to be a good man with regard to his neighbor. That's good, but insufficient if that man is not also a good man with regard to his God. Note Paul's denial and his affirmation. First, he says to deny or to renounce something. The Christian is trained to renounce ungodliness. That's a reference to the first table of the law. If you know what I mean by that, the first four commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not forsake the Sabbath. You should keep the Sabbath holy. In other words, this man is to have a godly, a Godward-directed life. He's to renounce ungodliness and to take up godliness. To be ungodly is to be impious, idolatrous, 
to have your gaze set on this secular age. Worldly passions, that second phrase, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, is a reference to the second table of the law. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit theft or steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet what belongs to your neighbor, etc. To be ungodly is to be impious. To have your gaze on the secular age, it's really a kind of, if you will, practical atheism. Practical atheism. You might say you believe in God, but you scarcely think of him, and there's no fear of God before your eyes. Listen, if you say, I believe in Jesus, but I really don't want to follow what the Bible says, there's no fear of God before your eyes. Your faith is false faith. Your own mind is the final judge of what is right and wrong. Your own passions are your master. You're living for what gratifies the flesh right now, living for temporal or secular desires, desires for the here and now. And the grace of God trains us to renounce that life and to affirm a godly life. And that's the affirmation part of this. Notice he says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live. Here's the affirmation. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To be self-controlled and upright is largely with regard to the second table of the law. Justice toward your neighbor or the other, loving one another. Godliness in the present age is a reference toward God or the first table of the law being directed toward him. Christians are being trained to be godly and upright in conduct. We're being trained to have a Godward life, to set our gaze upon the Lord in eternity. We're becoming those who love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're also being trained to love our neighbors as ourselves. Here, that's the greatest commandment, isn't it? What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Or the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, well, that's Christianity, right? No, that's the law. You can't do it. It's your failure to do that that damns you. Christ did it for you. He paid the penalty for you, and he broke the power of that for you, and now he is, by his grace, training you to do what you already failed at, what he did for you. To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're to be upright, we're to be self-controlled, to guard our hearts and minds and actions in accord with his word or his law. Tack righteously toward one another. Men who are saved, men who have been redeemed from lawlessness and purified as God's own possession, men who are zealous for good works, are a consecrated people. They've been set apart for worship, in other words. Their lives belong to the Lord, and whatever they do, they do as servants of Christ for the glory of God with thanksgiving to him for the grace that they know. So I don't care what your profession is. Christians do all that they do for the glory of God. This is the first way Paul augments the classical Greek idea of education or discipleship or paideia. He directs our virtue Godward in accord with God's law. But there's an equally important augment here to Greek paideia that he makes. An equally important one, our second one. Second, Paul teaches that this paideia or training is a work of God's grace. Notice that. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared. And now what does the grace of God do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen, this training is a work of God's grace. 
Friends, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. That's the participle, training us. It is the grace of God in Christ that trains us, that transforms us. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, we're still in our sins, condemned, unable to do any true good, unable to do anything righteous or to be righteous. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, we are still spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, in the state of the old fallen man. But if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Christ has freed us from sin's dominion. We're now forgiven, made new, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and being renewed in Christ's image and true righteousness and holiness. When I call Christians to be pious, godly, law-keeping, zealous for good works kind of people, I often hear, well, that's legalism. Legalism is when I think I have to do that to be saved. Legalism is when I add to what God requires in his law, human traditions, and say you must keep those. Those things are legalism. Doing good works because you're saved, that's just good old-fashioned Christianity. Here's the charge. The grace of God in Christ is free and you're placing burdens upon us. Friends, God's law was a burden that condemned you when you were not saved by God's grace. But in Christ, the law is no burden at all. It's our delight. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. That is not true because somehow the standard of holiness has been lowered. That's the impression we get. Somehow we come to the New Testament, Christ came along and lowered the standard of holiness. Made it easy for us all. The reason that his yoke is easy and his burden is light is because you've been redeemed from sin's penalty and power, reborn in Christ and by the Spirit, enabled to walk in accord with God's law. The grace of God in Christ was never so weak as to offer you forgiveness of sins and then to leave you in slavery to them. Charles Simeon spoke well of this as well. Listen to what he said. We will not concede one atom of the freeness or richness of divine grace. Yet we will maintain that the gospel is conducive to morality. For at the same time that it brings salvation to men, it inculcates every species of moral duty and enforces the practice of godliness in the most authoritative and energetic manner. We need the gospel to be trained in godliness. That's why, just as an aside, when we started Providence Classical Academy, we didn't start it as a classical academy. We started as a classical Christian Academy. Why does that matter? That's why we emphasize the family's relation to Christ's church. It's why we relentlessly point these children to Christ and expect the parents to do the same. Why? Because we can train children in habits and manners and academic disciplines and Western ideals, and we can produce, we can produce civilly virtuous people. We can. And I suppose that's better than the alternative. But that is not the goal. The goal is true Christian godliness. The goal of, if you will, Christian paideia is godliness, trust in the Lord. That's what the church exists to do. We exist to train you in godliness. We hold up the law and the gospel 
with equal clarity and weight. These are the two words, if you will, that God has spoken. We call you to cast yourself upon the grace of God in Christ and as those who are saved to believe sound doctrine that accords with godliness. So the appearance of Christ brings us salvation and trains us in godly conduct. Now let us talk about our final effect. This will be short of the appearance of the grace of God in Christ. The grace of God and the gospel gives us the hope of glory. So two things you can talk about around your table so far. The grace of God has saved you. The grace of God trains you to walk in godliness or godly conduct. Thirdly, the grace of God and the gospel gives us the hope of glory. Look at Titus 2.13. Waiting. That's the second participle, by the way, training and then waiting. So the grace of God has appeared, training us, and if you will, caused us to wait, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As I've been saying, Christ redeemed us from the penalty and power of sin. And one day, he will return and we'll be redeemed from the presence of sin. There will be no more sin or sorrow or death or Satan. That will all be eradicated in heaven and on earth at Christ's second appearing. He will destroy all our enemies with the brightness of his appearing. And the first appearing of the grace of God in Christ causes us to wait for the second appearing. This is a life of the Christian, a life of faith in Christ, a life of love for God and neighbor, and a life of hope, blessed hope, blessed hope in the return of Christ. We're a people who walk with our gaze upon Christ in heaven and a people who, if you will, live our lives waiting. Now, I want to be careful at this because you already know what it's like to live your life waiting. But I don't mean waiting for the next news cycle or waiting for a new job or waiting for a new president or waiting for a new set of earthly circumstances at all. I mean waiting for Christ's second advent, his second coming. At his second appearing, we will see our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in all his glory, and we will share in that glory for all eternity. That is eternal life. This is that which our eyes are to be set upon, eternal glory with Christ. That's how we're to live our lives as sojourners or strangers in this world, like Israel in the wilderness on its way to the promised land. So we are, if you will, in the wilderness of this world, waiting for the day we arrive at the promised land, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when the new heavens and new earth are consummated and we live with God in glory forever. That's where our gaze is to be. Our gaze is so often set here on our present circumstances. You say, how can I have joy always? Here's the command Paul gives. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Okay, how am I supposed to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances? Some of my circumstances are terrible. And they don't cause joy in me. They cause the opposite of joy, sorrow. 
How does that happen? You put your eyes not here, but there where Christ is. That's how. As long as your eyes are stuck here on this secular age, your lives will reflect that. They will not be filled with prayer, nor joy, nor thanksgiving. Inasmuch as by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, we cast our gaze upon him in heaven who is our life. Our hearts will be filled with joy. We'll be thankful in all circumstances. We'll pray without ceasing. That's what Christ has affected for his people in his first appearance at Christmas. The grace of salvation, the grace of a new life, the hope of glory. That's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate. That's why even if this Christmas is a reminder for you of the great sorrow and grief that you know because of various circumstances in your life that have overwhelmed you, and Christmas is just a reminder of them, even then, you can rejoice because Christ has appeared to save you, to give you a new life, and to fill you with the hope of glory. It's for that reason we can join Peter in his doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, to our hearing, that we would reflect on the grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ, that we would be thankful for his appearing, knowing that it is by his appearing that we've been saved, redeemed from all lawlessness, penalty and power of sin, purified as a people for your own possessions, zealous for good works, that we're a people who are by your grace being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to conduct ourselves in godliness in a self-controlled and upright way, that we are a people who, because of this grace, have the hope of eternal glory with Christ, waiting for his second appearing. Cause us to reflect on these things and so give thanks for the grace of God we have in Christ. Cause us to not waste this opportunity to celebrate Christ's first advent, Christmas, without continually meditating upon these effects of Christ's coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.